0: Hey, this is John Stevens, pastor of Chapelwood, and this is our weekly sermon podcast. I hope it will impact your heart and your life and help you grow closer to God. Check us out online at chapelwood.org. Thanks for tuning in. If you'll stand as you're able, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 18. And if you're looking in your pew Bible, it's on page 19. Everyone got that? You don't have to get a crick in your neck. You can use the, you know, the pew Bible. At the time, the disciples, and I could see these guys coming up to Jesus' saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Hey, my name is Joseph Clam. I'm one of the pastors here at Chapelwood United Methodist Church. Welcome to our online worship. We are so glad that you're here. I wanna encourage you to take a visit to chapelwood.org home to find out more information about how you can get connected here at Chapelwood. Also I wanna encourage you to register your attendance. And if you'd like to pray with someone, there's a link to do so. You may be remote, but just know that you are seen, you are known and you are loved. Welcome to Chapelwood. God bless. It is so good to be with you today. Uh, If you would uh, allow me, I had them provide a stool. Just as James said, we're getting older and my knee is getting colder. Um, And so I figured if I was going to stand and uh, preach at all three services uh, tomorrow, I wouldn't be able to stand at all. So if you'll just allow this. Um, I hope you're all having a great summer. Uh, This has been a a very interesting summer for me. Um, for the first time in 26 years on staff, I took a significant amount of time off, not because I was going on vacation or doing something fun, but because, uh, our church leadership, lay leadership, as well as John Stevens and, and Bob Lindsay had encouraged me to take time to rest because I was coming out of a, a really interesting season of, of busyness and, and they just encouraged me to rest. And so I took almost a month off and, uh, it was interesting. It took a while for the voices in my head, you know, the voices that tell you all the stuff you have to do. It took a while for those voices to quiet down. Uh, but after I got past that, uh, I really enjoyed sleeping. I enjoyed spending time with my family. I enjoyed, I went down to Galveston for a little bit and did some fishing. And uh, and so it was an interesting summer. Um, I always enjoyed summers. Um, summers for me growing up were like, like like a, a, a wide open playground where there was so much opportunity uh, to, to do different things and uh, and kind of a freedom that came uh, with the summer. But part of it was also that I've always enjoyed new beginnings. And, and you know, you, you, the summer season is a season where you know what's coming. You know, growing up, you know, it's the, the next grade in school. And as a parent, it's the, the next year and season of, with your children, and, uh, and I found that, like, I always enjoyed fresh starts, uh, and so we're in this season in our church where we're starting a new sermon series, and today is our big kickoff, and there's lots of kids around down in the children's ministry area and the student ministry area, and we're kind of launching into this new season of life, and, and so our sermon series is childlike, and it's Jesus' instructions for kingdom living. Now, like I said, uh, new beginnings come at the end of summer, and uh, this particular year, there's been a, some a little different experiences. Uh, our youngest child, JT, graduated high school last fall, and uh, JT, uh, we just moved him in a couple weeks ago to Huntington College in Montgomery, Alabama, He is playing lacrosse there. It's a nice United Methodist school, and we're really excited for him and his opportunity. Um, A week later, after JT uh, got moved in, his sister, Madeline, our middle child, and her dog, Sadie, loaded up the Ford Explorer and headed off to Auburn University. Uh, War Eagle, yeah, and and let me tell you, uh, you'll notice that the dog is riding shotgun. My, My wife and I did not go with her. She had the same apartment from last year and kept it over the summer and she just packed up her car and left. So that was a different experience. We'd always taken her to move her in. Uh, And then after we got back, you know, as we were quote-unquote empty nesters, we found ourselves in this unique situation where we were going on a double date with our oldest daughter who's out of school and her Boyfriend, And we went to go see the Barbie movie, and that's my wife Amy and Grace in the Barbie box there at Studio Movie Grill. So like between dropping off my kids at school or sending them on their way to going on double dates, I realized I'm entering a new season. Pulled this screen up this morning um, of the geographic. This is my the Find My iPhone app. And, and if you look closely, you can see JT and Maddie's pictures over there on the far right and the blank spaces are all my devices here in Houston. I, I was really pleased to know that this morning when I looked, they were exactly where they were supposed to be. Um, now, I haven't gone to check to see if they've gone to church. I can tell you, Madeline definitely went to church. I guarantee JT's phone probably hasn't moved yet. Uh, Maybe by the 1130 service it will have moved. Who knows? Uh, But this is a different season of life. Um, When JT was little, one of his things was he used to walk in the house from school and his clothes would begin to start coming off. I don't know if you've had a kid like that. You know, for many years he wore a uniform. So it's like you got like right by the front door was his shirt, And you go a little further in, and there was his belt. And then there were shorts. And then you eventually found at the end of the trail, he was wrapped up in a blanket with his dog, uh, either, you know, enjoying a snack or something. But it was just this trail. And I used to be like, oh, seriously, gosh, why is that kid not, uh, you know, can't he keep his clothes on? And and my kids also, like poor Nathan, look at him over there. He's trying to track down Maddox. And and you're not going to catch her, bro, I promise. (laughs) This sanctuary's is big. Um, this reminds me of my very first sermon I ever preached. My, my oldest daughter, 23, was sitting back there with my wife, and she did something that Amy said, no, Grace, you need to sit there and be quiet. Grace didn't like it, so she took off running straight down the aisle in the back screaming, and I was just in the middle of the sermon. Ever since then, I've always enjoyed having kids in the service, so you're, you're not going to rattle me, I promise you. Um, I may get off track, but not rattle me. The other thing my kids used to do is they would take off their shoes and leave them everywhere. There's a place for shoes. You all know this, right? Every house has a place for shoes. If you have a mudroom and you're coming in that door, they go in the mudroom. If, you, if, if you're not, you, they either go by the, the front door or they go in their bedroom. Why does there have to be shoes scattered all over the house? couple pairs here, couple pairs there. I used to complain about that. And my wife said one time, she said, Joseph, there will be a day when you will long for the scattered shoes. And you know, I didn't believe her. But it's true. My house is picked up and clean. That's the good news. But I already miss the scattered shoes. I, this kind of ties in because you know, we're talking about becoming like a child. And that doesn't mean that God is inviting us to scatter our clothes and shoes everywhere. Um, But it does give us pause to say, what is this passage really all about? You see, the reality is, is that if you do a deep dive in this passage, this passage is not about necessarily being like a child. It's also not about greatness. It's about the kingdom of heaven. See, the reality is is that uh, Jesus is taking something that is known and understood by his disciples and for us, and he's using that to unfold what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so the passage begins with this question from his disciples, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus takes that opportunity to reframe the understanding of what the nature of God's kingdom is all about. Now, here's the reality. We're not the first hearers of these, this word, right? There, there was an original uh, audience that received this story. Not only did you have the original audience that read the scripture and text, first century believers, but you also had the folks who would have been there with Jesus, his disciples and the close followers. And so whenever you hear kingdom language, you know, as as Western Christians, we, we have images of kingdom. But for them, it would have been different. There would have been this understanding of what the kingdom meant for a first century Jew. The, the first century Jews, through their study of the Hebrew text, would have understood that the kingdom of Israel, and there was the kingdom of Judah, and you, so you had the northern kingdoms, the southern kingdoms. And, and then also, even if you were a, a Gentile, a non-Jew, and you heard kingdom language, remember where they lived. They lived within the Roman Empire. The Roman kingdom. See, in the kingdom that the, the, the first hearers would have associated with, it would have been a kingdom of greatness that depended upon rank, achievement, loyalty. These kingdoms understood a top-down structure of hierarchy and, and, and a power structure in that way. These kingdoms would have evoked understanding of power influence and status all tangible cultural signs of greatness you see there there were you understood your lot in life you understood your rank and your status you understood where you where you fell in the power structure so it, we might think it was absurd that they asked the question who is the greatest But throughout the Gospels, when you read, you find that there's multiple occasions where Jesus pulls aside three of the disciples for for different experiences, more intimate experiences. James, Peter, and John. And so they get pulled into these unique experiences like the transfiguration, where they they witnessed something the other disciples did not. They heard things the other disciples did not. And so here are, are James and John and, and we, we know because if you read the Mark passage, the parallel passage, which is one of the things I love about studying Scripture, friends, is that God has given us this entire book, this, this library of books, where we're invited to go and explore and d- dive deeper, where there are these parallel passages where you'll find the same story printed and listed in two different Gospels. And in some cases, three different Gospels. And sometimes it gives us a different, unique perspective. And so I want you to to hear these words from the Mark translation. They left the place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. And then he goes into the discussion about the child. But that's the Mark passage. You get this unique glimpse into, well, okay, they were on the road. Jesus has been describing and explaining to them his death, his resurrection, his the betrayal that will occur, and it's as the Mark passage says: they did not understand what he meant, and he was afraid to ask them. And so their default, when not understanding, their default was to go to a discussion of what they did understand. Power structure. The culture they lived in was a culture of honor and shame. You find in multiple places in the gospel where they discuss where someone is seated at a table. Who at a banquet is afforded certain authority. These are are honor positions, right? And so Jesus used this example as a way to put into words, to reframe their understanding of what it meant to be the greatest what does it mean for in the kingdom of god now the reality is there's a part of our human nature that that talks greatness there's a human part of our human nature that strives for greatness we scripture even encourages and supports that we're called to do everything with excellence right all for the glory and honor of god And so there's some sense in which we have have this struggle of, we too are wrestling with the question of, who is the greatest? Now, if you know me, you know I love sports. I love all sports. While I played baseball, I, I love all sports. I can watch all sports. I can listen to sports. Uh, when we were driving up to Alabama, I was listening to the Astros on the radio. It was just so wonderful because they're winning. It was, it, I mean, it's nice. But whenever you listen to sports talk, or you, there, there's always inevitably going to be a conversation of the greatest. You go to the NFL and, 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 and you know, we recently had an individual retire that many have said is the greatest quarterback of all time. And that would be who? Tom Brady. Now, you might have a different answer. In, in 10 years, we might have a different answer. But right now, that's the general consensus. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but we live in a time right now where the greatest baseball player of our generation is playing. Do you know who that is? Shohei Otani. This Japanese pitcher slash hitter who is about to be a free agent. And let me tell you, when he signs his new contract, it'll be the largest contract we've ever seen in in, in the history of the sport. And he will have earned every single dime of it. Now, you get into basketball and you start talking about the greatest, and it really depends on how old you are. You're either going to say someone like Wilt Chamberlain, or then you're gonna say Michael Jordan, or if you're really young and, and ignorant, you would say Kobe Bryant or LeBron, okay? As a person who's about to turn 50, Michael Jordan is and will always be the greatest basketball player I've ever seen. Now, it doesn't just end with individuals. We can have a conversation of the greatest college football program in the state of Texas, I mean, it wouldn't be much of a discussion, right, John? Yeah, yeah, long words, right? Yeah, I mean, it's an easy answer. That's a good way to lose an audience. Um, Let me rephrase that. That's a good way to lose half the audience. Um, But we also have conversations about greatness of who's the greatest president? What's the greatest company or corporation we've ever built what's been the greatest decade uh for music who's the greatest you know country band or or pop? who's the greatest lawyer doctor you name it and you can have that conversation all right and but the the rubric that you grade those on are all of this world and and they determine the answer right but in this Passage, we start to get an idea that Jesus in his reframing of the kingdom of heaven in this reframing of what it means when you say who is the greatest, we start to understand that the reality is um, Jesus flips things upside down. Oftentimes the images that Jesus gets takes what we think is up and turns it down, takes what we think is down and turns it up. I found this this art on on the internet. I don't know who did it, but I found it captivating when I was thinking you can see there's a a road of travelers and I kind of imagine that that's kind of the road into Jerusalem and there is the kingdom of heaven though is upside down. And I started to re- realize that part of the invitation that Christ extends to us is that we have to begin to think differently and so in the passage of the mark passage says jesus called the 12 and he says anyone who wants to be first must be very last and must be a servant of all the first must become last the last will become first you see, the status in the kingdom is often inversely proportional to status in the world. What is considered great in the world is not necessarily great in the kingdom of heaven. And so to demonstrate this, Jesus invites a child to come forward. Now, I say he invites, the passage says he called for, and so in the translation, it, it was an invitation, so he, he beckoned for them to come forward. And what's important for us to remember is that the child came forward. The the child responded to the invitation. Now, we should not overlook the significance of the fact that it was a child. Child in the ancient world had almost no rights. Boys and girls, they stayed home to be nurtured by their mothers. And while their fathers were either working in the field, in their agricultural business, or worked a trade. And boys, when they came of age, could join their father to learn the craft. But girls usually were not afforded that opportunity. At home, children were taught the religious life, they, but they were not allowed to worship publicly in the temple. The, Jewish, the first century Jewish temples had, had walls that, that partitioned off different groups so the Jewish men could go and worship in one area, the Jewish women another, and then Gentile men. But there's not, a, a, there was no place that was afforded to children. If you go to Israel and you go to the um, the Western Wall, you can see it's there's still there's a partition and women go to one side and men go to the other for prayer. They don't pray together. Um, there's no provision for kids, and so the Torah contained rules and guidelines. Uh, it, it taught them how to how to treat and raise their kids, but it it did not give them status. They were a marginalized group in in the society. They were considered property of the male head of the household. And in some cases, in ancient Jewish culture, uh, children were sold in order for the family to have a quick infusion of cash. Now, I'm not going to lie. I wish I would have had that nugget of truth when my kids were little. Uh, That would have been great when my kids were yelling at me that I'm the worst father ever. This is the worst family ever. I hate this house. I don't want to be here. I would have loved to have said, you know, daughter, in the ancient Jewish culture, I could have sold you. That would have been great. Um, I don't know if it would have worked very well, though. It would not have been received very well. Um, Now, Jewish children did fare better than most children in the wider Greek and Roman world. Uh, Children were often abandoned and uh, they were viewed as unwanted burdens. But in the Jewish society, they were uh, on the lowest rung of society. They had no voice. And so here Jesus invites this child. Not only does he advocate for the child, uh, but for all those who find themselves in that marginalized category of lowest or least. Individuals who are vulnerable have no way to care for themselves. And Jesus does that time and time again. When he touches the leper who's been found unclean, when the bleeding woman touches the hem of his garment, by Jewish custom, he would have been unclean, but no. He turns things upside down. When he goes in to heal and call for the dead little girl to get up, are raised Lazarus. There's a sense in which Jesus is always going in and and making the marginal, making the least, making the lowly, and elevating them to a status. And so he invites the disciples, he says, uh, and, and actually it's not an invitation, but he states, unless you become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's the reality, friends. Um, this isn't about status. he's not saying to change your status, and it's about the qualities of the child. So the first thing I'll say is, children are curious, right? If you've ever been around a kid, you know that they're curious. Uh, the 21st century theologian Ted Lasso says it best, "Be curious. Not judgmental. Children explore. They ask questions. If you don't believe me, give a small child a box for Christmas that has toys inside. How many times when they pull the toys out, do they start playing with the box if it's big enough? Because that box can be a car, a train, a spaceship, a plane. It can become all kinds of things. They're curious. They ask questions. If you've ever been around a a four-year-old, you know that one question doesn't warrant just one answer because your answer will be followed up with, but why? And you try to answer, but why? Now, the, the, I don't believe children are trying uh, to drive us crazy with that. They're just curious. You see, the children's view of the world is so open and wide, It's not closed off, but our adult world somehow begins to shrink. Somewhere along the way, we began to shrink our understanding of our world. We created these silos. We stopped being curious and we just started standing on the reality of this is what I know to be true. So I don't need to ask questions. I don't need to go deeper because I know what's true. I know what is real. Part of our Adult world is that um, rather than growing larger, it's become smaller. We, we've been trapped in thought silos or our work silos or we live within silos of daily routine and patterns that over time just become ruts. But for the child, the world is large. It's inviting. The curiosity causes them to want to explore. Exploration is one of the fruits of Curiosity. This fruit of curiosity uh, doesn't, is not just held in this world, but also in the spiritual world. To have a spirit of exploration in, in our spiritual world, in our spiritual formation, would be to open up, rather than sp- shrinking what God is capable of doing, but actually open up what God is capable of doing. We've become locked into our traditions as being the only valid expressions of faith. Rather than opening ourselves up to say, God, why? What do you have for us, God? See, Jesus places a child among the disciples and says, be like this because he wants his followers to stay curious, to not live in his tightly closed world, but to remain open to all things possible. But see, the reality is that the disciples had already decided for themselves what the Messiah was going to look like. See, their version of the Messiah was going to be a conquering king who was going to come in and overthrow the tyranny in the Roman Empire and was going to free the children of Israel from this legal, harsh legal system of the Jewish law. The disciples had already shut down what their understanding of the Messiah. So when Jesus is teaching in these small examples and metaphors and, and, and talking about becoming like a child, they were missing it. The suffering servant is the one who is the Messiah. By placing a child in their midst, he was inviting, open, look for the things of heaven, not the things of this world. And so, uh, Jesus then says to be humble like this child. Humility is the manner of humble living. It's not merely just taking a low place. It's not self-denigrating or self-deprecating. It's not, uh, you know, kind of pushing yourself down so that other people will give you accolade. It's, I remember the first, one of the first times I ever preached, I got up at the beginning of the sermon. And I said, you know, I'm no Jim Jackson, and I got big shoes to fill. And, and so I just want to apologize in advance if you were expecting to hear Jim. And there was an individual after the sermon that came and said, I don't want to ever hear you say that again. I was like, why? He's like, because you are your own person. And in a way, I was trying to say it as a joke, right? And because and, and it, was, it was one of those things that I can say it, and then afterwards you're like, oh, you were great, Joseph. <laughs> you know, pat something myself on the back. That's not the kind of humility that uh, Jesus is talking about. The humility Jesus is talking about is an understanding of the truth of who we are, both the gifts that we've been giving as well as the failures. It's recognizing this truth of who we are in, in, in our essence and so to take a low position is just recognizing these are my failures these are my weaknesses and emphasizing my gifts well these are my gifts and strengths see humility has a balance of both so jesus invites us into a childlike posture we're called to embody the presence of christ in the world to live as ambassadors of god in this world and we are to be with God in and far this world. We are not called to isolate and pull out away from the world. We're called to live in and far, but not be of. We are to be with God in this loving connection tied to the life-giving love and energy of God through the Spirit. There no time that we find ourselves apart from God where we are separated from God. And we are able to be in the world and for the world not withdrawing from the world. That, that's incarnation, friends, that God took on flesh. And we, are, and we are to be for the world in the same way that God is for the world, to love the world as God loves the world, to care for the world as God cares for the world, give light and life to the world as God gives light and life. So for Jesus, those who are great are not the ones who receive loud praise and and applause in the culture. They're not those who draw crowds at rallies or concerts. Um, They're not even those who have a bunch of Super Bowl rings or considered the greatest of their generation in in, in a sport. For Jesus, the great are those who engage and cooperate with the loving energy of God. So the disciples are invited to imitate the people of no status because they recognize their dependence. I want to close with this. Um, There was a time when my children's survival was fully dependent on my wife and I. Uh, As they grew up, they found themselves less dependent on us. Never completely independent, but less dependent, which is a good thing, because if not, Amy would have had to stay in in Montgomery to wipe JT's backside. And so that's, that's good that he's independent. But becoming like a child is to recognize our limitations and to recognize the dependence we have. I've had several conversations recently with folks who have We've discussed the the platitude that you have heard before that says God's not going to give you anything you can't handle. And I'm here to tell you, friends, that that is a lie. On many levels, it's a lie. But first, you need to know that it assumes that God gives you hardships and trials, and that's not always the case. But the second is this. It assumes that you have within yourself the ability to handle whatever you're navigating, and that's not true. But as a child... We have a good Father in heaven. We have a God who is equipped and who is enough. And the reality is, is you will never find yourself in a situation where God is unable to handle it. And so our dependence, the invitation, is to depend and rely on God, just like a child. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we give you thanks for this day, and we thank you for this message of truth. And ask, Lord, that as uh, you shape and form us, that you would create in us a longing in our heart. Help shape us into becoming more like children with awe and wonder for you, Lord. We ask all these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.